1: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Travis Vogan, Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of Iowa. We're discussing Travis's book, Keeper of the Flame, NFL Films, And the Rise of Sports Media, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2014. As someone who grew up watching the productions of NFL films, I really enjoyed this book. Travis discusses the people who made the films, in particular the father and son team of Ed and Steve Sable, and he looks at the ideas behind the productions. Travis looks at these productions as films as well as promotions for the rising National Football League. And he makes the convincing argument that NFL films change the way that sports are presented. The book is well-researched and engagingly written, and it was a pleasure to talk with Travis about his work. Here's our interview. This week's guest on New Books in Sports is Travis Bogan. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we start each podcast with a few words of background about our guests. So I'll ask you to uh, to tell us what what led to your interest in uh, in sports and media in terms of studying sports and media, and in particular, what was the genesis of this this project on NFL films.
0: Well, I always liked sports, and um, but I wasn't really studying sports initially. When I started uh, graduate school, I was in an English department, and then I went into a media studies department I was primarily interested in documentary film, nonfiction media. And it occurred to me that that there was an awful lot um going on in in sports that was that was really relevant to some of the issues that I was talking about more through kind of a humanistic and, and media studies lens. And I was surprised that there just wasn't much said about these things in, in a kind of scholarly register. And so I started investigating Um, some of these issues just in coursework uh, kind of superficially and sort of for fun, I'd write a paper on them here and there. And um, one of the things that I was really interested in in regards to documentary, is some of the documentaries that would be kind of strange or offbeat or would use sort of innovative practices and and I would always think of NFL films as, as a real interesting example of this because and a provocative one because they were sort of right in the center of popular culture, whereas a lot of the documentaries that are a little more inventive tend to be kind of peripheral, um, art films and whatnot. And and so I thought it would be just kind of interesting to take a look at, at NFL films. And I wound up doing a little bit of research on them and I just discovered that that there was so much there, not only in terms of the documentaries themselves, but their relationship to pro football and not to mention the kind of strange history of the company starting as an independent production company and then becoming this like sort of corporate propaganda arm and, um, sort of its evolution over the years all- alongside the, the rise of cable television and then, um, the sort of proliferation of, of media that that happens now with, uh, the rise of the internet and social media. And so I thought this would be an interesting dissertation topic. And so I, I wound up, uh, Writing my dissertation on it with a lot of help from from the folks at NFL Films actually who let me interview um, a good a good chunk of their their staff and let me use their archives and access their archives and the dissertation worked pretty well and so I decided I was going to revise it into a a book and so over the course of the last few years I've been um, you know transitioning out of the dissertation and revising it into a book and then going through the process so that's kind of how it started.
1: And I was gonna you mentioned the research that you did at NFL Films. I wanted to ask about that because they, they pretty much yeah. gave you open access, correct?
0: Yeah, yeah they did. They was this was totally unusual. I was uh I was working on some uh, uh an initial project with NFL Films and one of my professors at the time uh recommended that I, I get in touch with them. And I'd grown up watching these programs on, on T V and then to my mind Steve Sable, the, the former president of NFL Films was you know, he was a major celebrity. So I didn't think that he was this is not actually the case, but in my mind he was and I didn't think they would be really interested in um giving me any kind of audience and, and the NFL as as probably a lot of listeners know is has a kind of tight lipped uh reputation. They call them the no fun league and they're very kind of cautious with their brand. So I wasn't expecting anything beyond maybe a fact sheet or, you know, sort of deferring me to PR or, or whatever. Um, but I was on the phone with, with Steve Sable within 48 hours, I think. And he said, Oh, you have to talk to this person. You have to talk to that person. And he hooked me up with all these other folks who had been there since the seventies. And, um, basically gave me an open invitation to go to NFL films and do interviews and to, um, Access their archives and um, introduced me to a lot of the folks in NFL films who, who run certain things that I didn't really know too much
1: about. And it was, they were incredibly accommodating. It was, it was a really uh, pleasant surprise. And so, how many hours of film did you end up watching?
0: I don't know. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Um, a lot. <laughs> a, lot of it, a lot of it is on, is available on VHS. Kind of interesting because, uh, you know, it's available in the archive, but they there was this real wave of, of VHS in the yeah. mid-'80s and early-'90s, um, and a lot of that stuff will probably never be released on, on any other format unless they open up their archive to kind of a streaming uh, service or something like that. So I just, uh, yeah, I don't know how much I watched, but, but quite a lot. Okay.
1: Well, Travis, let's turn to your book, and and I want to ask first about the title, "Keepers of the Flame," and and there's a story behind that phrase that you talk about in the book, and and it gets at the connection of NFL films to the National Football League. So, could you talk about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, the the title is their company motto. They
0: adopted this this motto from um, the Chicago Bears owner George Halas. Um, but he wasn't always particularly happy about NFL films. He thought they were kind of a nuisance. And he thought that uh, the league sent NFL films cameras to, to spy on him and his team and his staff. And and he was really kind of annoyed by these guys who were all of a sudden hanging out on the sidelines with 16-millimeter uh, cameras at, at every game. Um, and... He eventually saw some of their programs and saw few of their films about the, the Bears in particular, and he noticed that they were treating the, the League with such reverence and making it seem so dramatic and kind of amplifying its grandeur and all that kind of stuff that, that he was really kind of touched by. And he wrote the Sable um, a letter, and he referred to their company, which at that point was a subsidiary of the league as the keepers of the flame for the NFL, something that would kind of maintain um, and uphold this this positive uh, mythology that, that has been so central to kind of spelling the league um, since the 1960s. So that's where the title comes from
1: so you mentioned steve sable whom you met and uh, but we should uh, talk about his father who was the the founder yeah. of nfl films ed sable so can you give us a give us an introduction to ed sable and and tell us about the origins of nfl films sure yeah big ed as they called him he was an
0: athlete um growing up he was on the swim team at ohio state university um and he was also an actor and, and kind of a ham actually and he left um, Ohio State early to try his hand at Broadway, and he was in a few minor productions, um, and didn't didn't totally work out for him. And he wound up getting married and working for an overcoat company that his father-in-law owned. It's called the Jacob Siegel Coat Factory, outside of Philadelphia, and. Um, he hated his job he was just he, he thought it was terrible and life sucking and all that kind of stuff <laughs> uh he described it several times as kind of like going to the dentist every day um and one of his real hobbies though when he was when he was uh doing all of this stuff when he was just uh you know going about his work to day life was um making home movies and and he would do it kind of obsessively he would make movies of of everything. Steve Fable once said that, you know, and Steve Fable was very quotable too, that he didn't know his dad had a head when he was growing up because the camera was always on his shoulder. Um, so he was, he took it seriously and he would make all kinds of films and he would edit them together and actually pretty sophisticated, um, amateur, um, filmmaker. And so after a while, his, uh, father-in-law, I think he was probably about 40, early 40s at the time, his father-in-law decided they were going to sell the business and, so Sable got a pretty big windfall of cash, and he decided that he was just going to kind of uh, retire early and, and hang out and, and make movies and travel around. And he started this independent film production company called Blair Motion Pictures. Um, and he wanted to make sort of industrial films, um, educational films. And he did um, a few. He did one about, called All About Ice Cream which was about this uh, ice cream factory. His first one was called The Catch a Whale, which was about uh, whalers off the coast, off the Atlantic coast. Um, And it was actually a disaster. He was seasick the whole time and didn't really ever uh, do much. But um, he realized that the rights to film the NFL championship game uh, were bid on every year. And that the, this was in uh, 1962, and that the previous year's, uh, rights were one for, the the figures kind of vary depending on who you ask, but I think the dominant figure is $1,500. And he thought this would be really cool because he liked football a lot, liked making movies, and he would actually, a lot of his movies would be of Steve, his son, playing football, playing Kiwi football. Um, and so he placed a bid on the rights, and this was, you know, this was before, um Football is as popular as it is now, and obviously, filming rights are, are less costly than television because it's non-line, etc. But nevertheless, he doubled the amount of the previous year's bid. And so, when the league office um, got this bid, they thought it was kind of strange. They'd never heard of this guy, he didn't really have any experience to speak of on his resume, etc. But they were intrigued because it was a pretty sizable bid. So, uh, he had a meeting with Pete Rozelle. He had like three or four martinis at lunch or something like that. And Sable, remember, is the salesman. And so he kind of sold Rozelle on this idea of being able to represent the league in a pretty dramatic way. And Rozelle basically decided, all right, let's give this guy a chance because, you know, if it didn't work out, it really wouldn't be that big of a deal for him anyhow. And that's kind of how he started making the – films of the nfl championship he won the rights to the next two years um the films became increasingly popular and he kind of realized that as these films gained popularity you know somebody was gonna was gonna decide wow well, we can drive up the the price of bit bid higher than than this sable guy can afford and get the rights and get the contracts so he said hey um nfl why don't you bring us in-house you buy us, um, and we'll we'll make all of your films. And, um the owners voted to uh, acquire Blair Motion Pictures and turn it into NFL films, and they've had cameras at every NFL game since. And what year was that? Uh, this was in. Uh, they acquired them in '64. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. And you've, and you've mentioned Steve Sable uh, uh, who he's also quite quotable and so uh, yeah uh, what was what was his role in the, the in the development of NFL films Well his dad was more an entrepreneur
0: and Steve was more um, the kind of artistic visionary. The earliest NFL films productions were actually pretty straightforward. Um, they were dramatic, they were exciting in certain ways, but they were not too far from the uh, highlight films that you might see um, as part of a newsreel package in the late 50s and early 60s. And and what Steve Sable brought to the table was, was a kind of coherent, aesthetic vision that tried to bring out the romance of the game and really tried to treat it in a cinematic way, or at least that was his goal. And so, um, one of the things that, that he did, and when he, when this, uh, company started, he was just in college, he was pretty young, but he, he, um, developed scripts that were kind of, uh, what he would describe as a kind of epic poetry or a variation of epic poetry. He wound up in combination with his dad, um, hiring John Facenda, who who we now know as the voice of God um and they hired people to do scores that were more like movie scores um, in particular this guy named Sam Spence started using montage editing uh reverse angle replays um, ground level slow motion which was a big one telephoto lenses etc all these kinds of techniques to really try to represent football as a cinematic and and kind of visceral um um, experience that, in in Steve Sable's words, would would give the viewer goosebumps. That was kind of one of his main goals.
1: And they were quite explicit in their references to particular films, correct?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, one of their uh, one of their sort of their ur text, I, I guess, or sort of their their uh, foundational film uh, was this production called called they call it Pro Football. Um, and it was kind of an introduction to the league and Steve Sable called it any, well, he says that other people refer to it as the citizen cane uh, of football movies. Um, and that was the film that kind of combined all of their dominant conventions, the ones that I just, that I just mentioned. And beyond that, um, in interviews, Steve Sable would, would often reference, um, visual art. He would often reference writers, other films and kind of suggest that his craft was rooted in these recognizable um, artistic traditions. And, and that was true, I think to an extent, but it was also a strategic move on his part. And as you know, uh, sports media is is a stereotypically lowbrow endeavor. you know, it's part of everyday life. It's not something that we expect to be. Um particularly creative or enriching or thought provoking, and Steve Sable wanted his films and one of NFL films productions to be thought of differently. He wanted them to be considered art, and so he worked really hard not only on the production side of things to make these things uh um look interesting and and, and exciting, but also kind of on the the marketing side to situate them as um artworks and he himself was. Very much, um, he very much considered himself to be an artist. He was an art major at Colorado College. He produced original artworks throughout his uh, career. If you go to NFL Films headquarters now, you walk around the hallway. It's the the hallways are lined in addition with, you know, images from from football history with, with Steve Sable's artworks, um, collages, boxes, uh, really interesting stuff. So he worked really hard to suggest that, that he was an artist and that NFL films was in the business of producing art and that football was uh, was the subject, just like Monet <laughs> does Lily, you know.
1: Yeah, so something that struck me in reading in reading the book, particularly that opening chapter where you introduce Ed and Steve Sable, is that, uh, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that a lot of sports media is, is lowbrow, but these two guys were really renaissance men. They they had this leaning toward drama, literature, art, and, and this comes out in terms of what they want to do with, with NFL films. Yeah, they really
0: were. Um, and, and I think that that had a lot to do with, um, you know, how they developed these practices, uh, how they marketed these practices, and how they reached out to, to different types of audiences, etc. cetera. Um, now, they were... You know, they were renaissance men, and they were very much kind of schooled in artistic traditions, but they were also businessmen, too, and they wanted to attract a broad audience. And amid Steve Sable's references to Monet and Picasso and, you know, later Kurosawa, he would um, also say things like, well, it's just football, you know. Football is, is a game. Football is fun. Football is something that... We should, uh, be able to enjoy while we're sitting down having a beer, et cetera. And one, one line that,
1: one line that you have, oh, I remember yeah. he says is, uh, the fate of the universe is not at stake. The fate of the universe is not at stake. He would also say things like, we're the
0: balloon and we're the pin. We blow it up and then we can kind of explode it. And he was talking about that specifically in reference to the Follies film, which kind of poked fun at the league. And so he wasn't just trying to be highbrow. But he was trying to appeal to maybe a broader audience than might have stereotypically been interested in football um, so it was it was strategic in certain in in several ways right both trying to gain that credibility for himself and for his company, but also trying to expand the league's audience and and you know I think that they were it seems like they were pretty successful to that end
1: um yeah, you mentioned you mentioned the football follies films that they produced. I believe so. Uh-huh. This would have been in the mid to late '60s, and this is something yep. I've seen many times. Uh, you know, football fans yeah. of my generation have seen this many times. And uh, but you point out in the book that this was uh, this was pretty unusual in in the genre of sports films to have have a film about the the mistakes and gaffes that players make.
0: Yeah, and it was well it was also kind of unusual coming from a, a league outfit and the league was pretty hesitant to embrace these Follies films because they were kind of poking fun at gaffes and and mistakes and whatnot. And um Steve Sable decided, well let's let's do a test screening. Or, Can we do a test screening? And they did one for the Eagles because they were their headquarters is in uh, initially in Philadelphia, then moved to South Jersey right down the road. And the players loved it. They thought it was hilarious. And um, so they wound up doing the football follies, and it wound up being their highest-selling production ever. And and maybe more importantly, kind of set the stage for an entire genre of not just sports media, but um, popular media in general. I mean, you could probably trace America's Funniest um, Videos back to the football follies to a certain degree. Um, And an interesting thing kind of along the line of what we were talking about earlier with building this aesthetic credibility or or referencing art. The Follies um, title card had a picture of of Johnny Unitas, and then it had this sort of comic squeaky marker effect that appeared and drew a mustache on him, kind of similar to uh, Marcel Duchamp's um, uh, treatment of the Mona Lisa. So you still get that <laughs> so, reference to the, to the art world mixed in with uh, the Follies film, too.
1: Travis, can you tell us about how uh, NFL films would, would shoot games? I, I found this to be really interesting in terms of the positioning of the photographers, uh-huh. the instructions that they had, and, and then how the films are assembled.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, basically, they would have three camera positions. Um that they would, three basic camera positions that they would occupy. And sometimes they would only have two cameras at a game. Sometimes they would, you know, Super Bowl, they'd have 10 or 15. Now they're, you know, who knows how many cameras they have at a game. But um, the three positions were the tree, the mole, and the weasel, which is what they would call them. And the tree was sort of the, the standard up in the stands at the 50-yard line for the panoramic view, and that was to make sure they got every play, right? They didn't miss any play. And if, for some reason, the person on the sideline um, didn't get a good shot, then they would be able to to go to that, that tree shot if they needed you know, if it was a great touchdown pass or something like that. Now, the mole was on the sideline doing some of the, mostly the ground-level stuff. Um, so when you see that kind of ground level slow motion, or when you see the close ups of the hands um, lining up at the line of scrimmage, you know those were done by by the sideline cameras. Um, the weasel was was someone with a, obviously a handheld camera who would go through the stands on the sideline and get all of the um, candid material, um, the stuff that that kind of surrounds the game. So you'll have these shots or cuts to fans screaming or, or yelling or coaches um, screaming at the uh, at the refs. Um, some really famous shots of uh, folks like Hank Stram and, and Marv Levy come to mind, Vince Lombardi, um, et cetera. So those are the three basic camera positions. And um, once they shoot all the film, they take it back to NFL Films, which actually is a... Um, Full, fully functioning uh, production facility. They don't just, um, you know, assemble stuff. They process the film, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It goes from film to to finished product, all within that um, building. They process the film. Um, some people go through the game film and and sort of clip the the portions of it that they think might be usable, and then the producers um, assemble the films for whatever kind of program they might be doing, whether it's a weekly highlight show or, or a season um, highlight film for a particular team um, or whatever. So, so that's kind of the basic process that, that goes into uh, filming and then kind of bringing the film back to NFL films for uh, use in the production.
1: And one thing I found interesting, when you were describing how the, the films are made, that uh, you know, one shot those those people who've seen an NFL films highlight film one one shot that we always associate with it is the tight shot on the on the football spiraling through the air this yeah. this long pass. And something that you bring out, which I don't, it'll make sense when you point it out, is how difficult this would be for for a photographer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the, the ever quotable Steve Sable described it as trying to juggle while surfing. Um, because you have to keep the ball tight in the frame while adjusting for focus and, you know, following its, its flight through the air. So it's a, it's a very difficult task just at the sort of technical level for, for camera operators to, to accomplish. And, and it became kind of a signature uh, of NFL films, right? Kind of the beauty. A football with this single sphere um, flying through the air in slow motion, probably backed by you know a, a soaring orchestral swell. Um, and it became this real kind of signature shot um, that NFL films uses to to showcase the league's
1: gracefulness and beauty. Travis, a few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, uh, Brett Hutchins and David Rowe about their book on on sports and media. And uh, yeah, uh, one nice thing, work. yeah, and one thing they pointed out is in the book is uh, a big part of the attraction of sports for broadcasters for networks is that the audience really has to be there. They have to be there live. They watch the event once, so it's not like a, a movie or a show that you can record, you can skip past the commercials, or download and watch later, but the productions of NFL films were unique in terms of looking at sports media, in that you could show them over and over again. And I would say, for one, and and friends of my generation, we watch them over and over again. I mean, we memorize yeah. the the lines that, that were spoken in these highlight films.
0: Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point, and that's all. NFL films might be something of an exception in that regard, and I think the reason they are an exception um, to a degree, um, things have kind of changed. Um, since they since they started, um, but the reason they are sort of, kind of a, an exception is because of that sort of cinematic quality that they try to um, establish with their films. They try to make them something that's not just dependent on what's happening um, on the field. They try to make them something more, and in fact, that's the whole point of NFL films: is to mythologize these events and to make them seem more dramatic, more exciting more beautiful, more important than they actually are. And, and a function of that or a consequence of that is that they're these things that can kind of stand alone as entertaining. Now, the flip side of that is that NFL Films was creating a lot of these productions or sort of heyday, if you will, was probably before the popularization of cable TV, right? And so a lot of their highlight films, were things that people would see on maybe a Wednesday they would come out they'd be, ta- they'd be referencing films that or sorry games that were played on Sunday and people hadn't really seen much in the way of highlights of these um, games aside from maybe a really short snippet on the evening news um, etc and so they did have this kind of value in that regard and what happened later on when cable TV sort of took off is you're getting these highlights produced immediately after the game. And so by Wednesday or even Monday, you've already seen these highlights again and again and again. And so their value, um, even though NFL films is really spicing them up, um, is diminished. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's something to be said for, um, Hutchinson's point there. But I do think that NFL films is kind of an exception and the, you know, their programs that they do yearly like Road to the Super Bowl, um, cetera, I think they you know, I think they do hold up, even though we know exactly what's going on. We're still gonna watch that because we wanna know how NFL films represented it. We wanna see it through that particular style. Um and so I think their aesthetic conventions have kind of helped them to to ward off uh liveness as a kind of be all and end all of,
1: of sports media, mm-hmm. and following up on that, something you discuss is how NFL films helped uh, promote professional football by making the mm-hmm. NFL into a year-round event. So these these highlight yeah. films would be shown around the country. I remember watching them in in you know church basements or for athletics <laughs> banquets or things like that in 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 March. And uh, and this helped to, your point was, this helped to build the popularity of the NFL.
0: Yeah, and this was, I mean, the NFL is now a -a 12-month-a-year sport, um, no doubt about it. I was watching the draft. I mean, I was watching the the draft for this weekend or parts of it, and it's ridiculous. This is something that that people have been anticipating. The draft, it has nothing to do with the season. Uh, Well, I guess it it sort of does, in as much as some players will end up playing in it. But this thing that happens in April or May, is is now this kind of event that people anticipate. And NFL Films, before all these things became these kinds of spectacles that that traversed the entire year, NFL Films was was creating kind of these reminders that that football is is exciting. And um, they would show productions during the summer. And actually, they would adjust the kind of productions that they would show during the summer to stuff that wasn't just dependent on the season. So they would show these kind of human interest pieces during the summer that would show what players did during the off season that showed players' lives away from football. Um, One of my favorites is this one called The New Breed," and it's about sort of players' relation or certain younger players who had a a relationship to kind of the 60s counterculture, and it's about players with longer hair, players who who like to dress slightly differently, um, who are a little bit more um, I don't know, uh, along the lines of, of kind of the, the counterculture or the hippie culture at the time. and and it was it was just sort of a, a profile piece, but it also kind of introduced people and introduced fans to these players, um, and created some kind of connection or relatability to these players, and maybe provided an incentive to watch them the following season there was in the new breed. There was this linebacker at the time he was for the Eagles. And he was actually Steve Sable's roommate for a while named Tim Rossovich. And he was uh, making um, driftwood candles on the beach and walking around and talking about like these, these sort of trippy dreams he would have and, and whatnot. It was just a, a really interesting thing um, to have at that time. And, and in doing so, or in, creating these profiles it was also trying to, to broaden the league's audience right and to remind people that football is going on it's going to be starting in a few months right?
1: and at the same time the the narrative of nfl films was to connect football to american culture absolutely yeah
0: and in this case you could argue that you know by stressing these players relationship to the counterculture it was courting younger fans or courting a different type of of younger fan and it's It's interesting, too, so with the Rostovich film where they're talking about how he has this kind of different perspective and kind of open-minded, long hair, has the wearing the bell-bottoms and the tie-dye and all that kind of stuff, it also really stressed that even though he looks different, he still has this same kind of desire, this same kind of discipline, this same love for the game. So while it might show somebody who is a little bit different, he would always kind of recuperate These people within the framework of this mythology, right, that football is hard work, football is kind of um, discipline and teamwork and and all of these things that we associate with the game uh, or that they want us to associate with the game and the league.
1: Travis so something that's discussed uh now in connection with uh, not only the NFL but with with football at all levels in the US is uh the violence of the game and and the cost of yeah. the violence. And uh, I want to talk about how NFL films uh presented violence.
0: Well they I mean to just to not beat around the bush I mean they glorified it. Um there, <laughs> there were films that they made called The Headcracker Suite. Um there were films that they made of, Called bell ringers. I mean, some really problematic representations of violence in football that, um, no doubt, celebrated this. Um, these kinds of activities that we now know are incredibly dangerous. Um, and this happened up up through the 90s. There was a film they did called Crunch Course, um, Strike Force, Moment of Impact all this stuff that we see today, and we're like, whoa, um, you can't do that. <laughs> um, and so I think that there is a degree of of kind of responsibility that, that NSL Films has um, for contributing to this um, celebration of violence that we now know is, is very dangerous and even life-threatening. Um, but I think there's also a sense that NFL Films is a kind of subsidiary that's responsible for glorifying the league. They aren't responsible necessarily for researching the impact of concussions. That's something that, to my mind, falls on the league's shoulders. Um, And I think that the league primarily had a responsibility to step in, especially if they did have knowledge of these long-term effects of concussions, which, um, you know, if you've read certain things circulating about that, particularly League of Denial, um, you know, we get the impression that they did. Um, you know, they had a responsibility to step in and say, hey, you can't do this anymore. Um, but, yeah, NFL films definitely participated in that sensibility that the violence uh, of pro football um, is – Something that, that we should we should celebrate and cherish, and and that even something like getting your bell rung is kind of a mark of uh, toughness, or getting your bell rung and being able to go back in the game, etc. So they definitely played a, played a role in that
1: continuing with that i want to ask how uh, nfl films dealt with other other problems facing professional football <laughs> so knowing that you uh, you're a fan of the work not of, very uh, directly okay <laughs> I, I was going to say i know that you're a fan of the work of michael o'riard and he la- lays out Absolutely. clearly the problems with the league so is this something that they they completely skirted uh you know it would be it would be
0: it would be inaccurate to say they completely skirted it but their job is to sell the league Right, their job is to make the league look good. Their job is to make the league look romantic, um, to attract a broad audience, Um, and so they would avoid most problems. O.J. Simpson doesn't come up unless you're talking about a running back from the 1970s who played on the Buffalo Bills. Um, They've been tasked; they've had to kind of adjust a little bit along with the rise of the NFL network, which is positioning itself as a news outlet, even though the, the idea of having a news outlet that's owned by the very organization it covers is a little bit absurd. Maybe maybe a lot absurd, um, but you don't, you're not going to hear about that kind of stuff. I mean, they, they didn't do, they avoided dirty hits, right. Um, even though they would celebrate these fair or legal hits that were probably more, um, damaging ultimately. Um, but yeah, they would stay away from the controversies. Um, you're not going to see, um, an investigation of the Michael Vick situation or the Ben Roethlisberger situation or Ray Caruth situation produced by an NFL films. Um, Program, They're going to be represented solely as players, and likely their presence is going to be minimized when they are um, facing these kinds of things. Now, if somebody gets into hot water and later kind of recuperates their image and later becomes um, someone who is kind of, quote-unquote, rehabilitated... Then they might use that as the basis for kind of a inspirational segment. But uh for the most part they're promoting the league, they're celebrating the league. And that's what makes them kind of interesting, right? Is because they, they make these kinds of myths. Myths that a lot of people um or that folks oftentimes treat as reality. Um and I think it's important that we kind of push against that and that we sort of um recognize that NFL films does some really interesting stuff does um, some really entertaining stuff, but also that their job ultimately is to help the NFL sell the league right and help the nFL create a positive image for the league and that's something that we need to be i think you know pretty critical
1: of so as you mentioned earlier travis uh uh professional football has become almost omnipresent in in uh, contemporary sports media, thinking of Uh, with the proliferation of cable television, sports television, and the NFL is always there 12 months a year. So does NFL films still have a place in American sports media? It does have a place, but it's changed.
0: Um, NFL films' sort of signature programs um, have kind of taken a back seat within the National Football League's media operations, uh, which have expanded since the development of the NFL Network. And you're going to see more kind of news-driven stuff, so injury reports, speculations on the draft, um, updates on trades, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's principally what the NFL network emphasizes. Now, NFL film stuff is still produced. They still do highlights for every team. They still do, um, you know, certain types of programs. They produce Turning Point, for instance. Um And they still do those kinds of things, but they oftentimes don't resemble the kind of classic aesthetic that made them so iconic. That's kind of taken a back seat to um, the league's efforts to keep up with with other media outlets like like ESPN. And the stuff that they do um, in the more traditional format is oftentimes relegated to... Um, less popular time slots, etc. It's kind of niche now. It's um, almost like the History Channel within the, the NFL Network or, or, or something along those lines. Um, but that's not to say that NFL Films, the company, ha- has dissolved, but a lot of their operations are now um, functioning in the service of the NFL Network, which is an organization that has different kind of aesthetic and um, promotional goals. Um, and the irony of that is that NFL Films kind of laid the foundation for something like the NFL Network and, and even to a degree, you know, cable television, sports in general, to um, emerge. And now it's kind of more or less or to a degree become kind of a victim of its own uh, success, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as necessary to this media infrastructure that, that it helped to create. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm, I'm thinking, Travis, and talking, as you're talking about the, the diminished role of NFL films, one of the things that, that I really appreciate, and especially after reading your book, uh, that NFL films did is as a, uh, uh, it's, its role as a shaper of memory for fans. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so when I was growing up watching NFL films, something it gave me was a sense of the league's past and the great players who you know, played decades before uh, you know, before I was watching professional football. And is that something that, that's going to be lost, that, that role of NFL films as the shaper of memory, as, it, as its role becomes diminished, and, and as the league entrusts uh, its, its image-making to NFL Network and to its connections with ESPN and other networks?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I would I would hesitate to say that the the sense of history is going to be lost, um, and I think that, that that history that it that it produces is, is interesting. Um, but it's also important to remember that that it was being used strategically. I don't know if the league was showing this Lombardi or Jim Brown footage just for the sake of remembering its past, but creating, again, this mythology that would help us to see the NFL as kind of a storied, important institution. And I wonder sometimes, I've thought about this question too, um, if now that that mythology is so firmly in place, if they really see the need to, to focus in on it
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and, and maybe they find it more lucrative or, uh, easy or inexpensive, maybe, to, um, to focus on, on the immediate. Um, but it's fascinating, you know, and if you think about the history of sports, sort of the visual history of sports, uh, from the last 50 years or so, these images are so prominent, you know, Lombardi, Jim Brown, Johnny Unitas. And it's not just because football is important to America. Um, because it obviously is, but it's because this footage exists, right? We didn't have anybody, you know, filming Roberto Clemente, you know, in 16 millimeter rounding the bases. I mean, it happened from time to time, but but not to the not in the way that NFL films did it. Or um, you know, another example, uh, you know, you, you don't have footage of of uh, Bill Russell, you know, with sweat sort of dripping down his brow in slow motion color in the same way that you do with uh, the NFL stuff. So um, this history is, is is valuable, I think, in a way. But it also creates kind of a – and is designed to create a bit of a skewed view of what sports mean in America and why they're important and who they're important to, et
1: And that's And that's a big part of your argument is that the rise of the NFL yeah. to become the United States' most popular sport – comes from these images and these productions from NFL films.
0: Yeah, in part, you know, I mean, it it was part of a bigger effort. Um, And Pete Rozelle is very much responsible for this. He was a really marketing and PR savvy guy. Um, But NFL films was a huge part of that. They were also doing things like creating board games for kids and um, doing charity work like they do now and all these kinds of things to cultivate an image, a favorable and dramatic image. And and NFL films is, you know, arguably the most prominent piece in that larger effort. And if you look at all the stuff the NFL is doing today, as far as it's marketing um, activities, as far as it's kind of charitable and PR activities, you know, I think you can trace a lot of that to NFL films. It's not entirely responsible for it, but it played a pretty important role in that effort.
1: Well, Travis, we're almost out of time, so I'll ask you uh, what you're working on now. What's your new project? Uh, I'm writing a book on ESPN right
0: now. It actually kind of grows out of a lot of the ideas that I was working with, the NFL films, and the, the whole thing that I'm looking at with this project is how ESPN builds a sense of authority and credibility within sports media, how it convinces people of its worldwide leader in sports status, engaging practices that are stereotypically viewed as more sophisticated or refined than run-of-the-mill sports media. So I'm looking at how it sponsors film festivals, creates documentaries, publishes books, hires people like Hunter S. Thompson, <laughs> sponsors sports writing awards, all these kinds of things that, that we might imagine as being maybe more refined than, than your typical sports media and how it uses that to... Create authority, expand its reach, compete for market share. So it's kind of the relationship between ESPN's industrial and commercial activities and its cultural meaning.
1: Well, Travis, very good, and, and, and I'm, I'm
0: excited to write to, for the all rounder that you're running.
1: Yeah, it will be great to have you. <laughs> I look forward to it too. It'll be great to have you uh, writing for it. So yeah, for those listeners, this is uh, we're branching out of podcasting and moving into a uh, an online site that will feature a lot of the guests that have been on the podcast in in the last last few years and uh travis will be one of them and uh yeah i look forward to it
0: yeah it should be a lot of fun and we uh, appreciate you starting that thing out bruce
1: you've been listening to an interview with travis vogan about his book keepers of the flame nfl films and the rise of sports media published in 2014 by the university of illinois press New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from philosophy to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports, or friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.